Good morning, everyone. We're going to be picking back up in chapter 15 of Proverbs. We left off right around verse 26. And for one reason or another, last week I just blew through the fact that we were transitioning somewhat. I know that these sections, this organizational structure is somewhat artificial, is somewhat just cued off of subtle changes in the text. But at verse 20, you see a wise son makes a glad father. And that remark in regard to a wise son marks a change or a transition. So we will be in this section, advice to a wise son, which will go chapter 15, 20 through 17, 24. So we'll be in this section for some time. And again, like I said, picking back up where we left off at verse 26. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, just to get a quick run-up then, go through, uh, go 20 through 26. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. The path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. So, 26 then, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination. We've seen this language used before and we'll see it used again. That is contrasted with the gracious words. So, rather than the thoughts of the wicked, but the gracious words, the merciful words are pure with the implication that they're pure in his sight. So the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination in his sight. The the gracious words or grace-filled words are pure in his sight. So again, we're in very familiar turf and territory, marking out the two different ways or the two different kinds of people here. Those who are Christian and those who are not, to put it in our own Time and place to use that language. Okay, on to 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain. Now we know that greed in general is condemned, of course. But here the greed is specifically for unjust gain. Troubles his own household. But he who hates bribes will live. Okay, so what is a type of unjust gain? Bribery. That's certainly a connection there. So whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. So the idea here, again, that God is watching and God will bless those who hate all ill-gotten gains, bribes included, which happen to be the most common. Worldwide, and even in our culture, I think it's maybe not quite so obvious as it is in other cultures and other countries, but it is nonetheless a simple part of life is bribery or the use of money to gain influence. So one who hates such unrighteous use of wealth um, will live, and will live prosperously is the implication here, because God is watching, God is blessing, whereas, of course, one who lusts after unjust gain is going to end up 
not only damaging himself, but causing troubles within his own household. All right, I'll go a little further, and then I'll ask if you have any thoughts. Of course, if you want to interrupt, feel free to. It's always better to have a dialogue than a monologue. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. So again, we've seen this theme before. The righteous is about to be contrasted with the wicked, and you even have kind of a little um, chiasm here in terms of structure, because you're going to have righteous, wicked, wicked, righteous in verses 28 and 29. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. So this slowness, this ponderousness, this meditativeness, because what comes to our minds first and foremost is not the wisdom of God but the fleshly opinion. That's usually what's right at hand. Not always. It's usually what's right at hand. So you need to pause and ponder. Or even if it is the word and wisdom of God that comes immediately, you still want to pause and ponder and make sure you're not deceiving yourself or misapplying or some other such thing. So the righteous ponders how to answer. Now contrast that with the mouth of the wicked, which doesn't ponder, doesn't stop and then speak, but is all already flooding out. There's a rather crass expression we have for that. But it is where the mouth is loosed and is loosed in foolishness. So the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. You can hear uh, certainly an echo of our Lord's words where he cautions us how to speak knowing that for every idle word we will be held accountable. So that kind of quietness of heart, quietness of mind, quietness of speech, these are general Christian virtues, and generally virtues of the wise and righteous as opposed to the foolish and wicked. A fool, among other things, is known for his many words. All right, so righteous, wicked. Now, wicked, righteous in verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked. Again, reflecting that thought in the earlier proverb in 26, that the thoughts of of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. So here the Lord is far from the wicked. But he hears the prayer of the righteous. Maybe not the clearest verse that demonstrates this, but nonetheless demonstrated by this verse is the fact that God doesn't hear all prayers. (laughs) There are a good number of people that hit the junk folder. If you don't have a relationship with God, so to speak, if you don't know who he is in and through his son, and you're not praying in any good faith, you're just praying because you're wicked and want wicked things to happen, you're not going to listen to that. So, he is far from the wicked, but he does indeed hear the prayers of the righteous. Now, does that mean that you have to be righteous enough for God to hear you? (laughs) Do you have to attain some level of righteousness? We often think this way, though, don't we? It's one of the reasons why our prayer life suffers when it suffers. It's because we think, I'm too unholy for God to hear me, or I've messed up recently, or I've got a guilty conscience, I shouldn't pray. And maybe there's a granule of truth to that. The granule of truth would be, well, your very first prayer then should be confession. (laughs) Just come clean and come out with it, and ask God to forgive you and have mercy for the sake of Christ. And he will. That's who he is. And then let your petitions be made known. So the prayer of the righteous that the Lord hears is clearly one who is credited with righteousness, reckoned righteous, accounted righteous for Christ's sake. That's true of the Old Testament saints as well as the New Testament saints. That's what it means to be righteous in such a way that God will hear your prayer. If we ever had to predicate the hearing of our prayers upon our personal righteousness, upon our sanctification or lack thereof, we could never be certain that God would hear us. Luther's got just a brilliant take on this. It's counterintuitive. It's not at all like the thought patterns of 
late contemporary American Lutheranism. You can study this for yourself if you like in the large catechism. But when Luther talks about prayer, perhaps especially under the uh, second commandment, not to misuse the name of God, but to call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. And the logic there is we know God hears our prayers because he commands us to pray. And from a late contemporary American Lutheran standpoint, you go, well, that's all law. Luther just doesn't care about that. God commands you to pray, so pray and know that he hears you because God's not an idiot, and if he commands you to pray and you pray, he's promising inherently to hear you. So even the law in instructing us to pray is contains within it this element of promise, namely that God will hear your prayers. He's commanded them. And then, of course, as you go on, Luther says, and if you don't pray, God may well punish you. (laughs) Which is something we don't consider. We don't consider that when we fail to pray, we're sinning against him and sinning against our neighbors, whom we are failing. So all the more impetus to pray and pray that God, or and, and trust that God will hear our prayers. So those are some additional thoughts to consider straight from the catechism in addition to the one I just presented which is that God will hear us for the sake of Christ and if your own conscience is a stumbling block to prayer then just let your first prayer be that confession okay so then that maybe is uh, all I want to do me personally with this line that he hears the prayer of the righteous. Again, those who are righteous in Christ on account of faith. Let me pause there and see if you have reflections then on this last little chiasm we have, righteous, wicked, wicked, righteous, and 26, or excuse me, 28 and 29, or anything that went before is all fair game. And if you don't, that's fine too. We'll just keep moving. But I'll give you the opportunity. Excellent. Let's move on then to 30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. And you have a little bit of a difficulty in translation here. If you have a Lutheran study Bible, if you don't, you definitely should. Especially because this is Proverbs and a book on wisdom. And it's not very wise to lack a Lutheran study Bible. So grab a Lutheran study Bible, and if you look down at the note, the light of the eyes, a twinkle of the eyes, which can bring joy to another's heart. And I agree with that. I, I mean, not only, obviously, the, the translation proposed, but the sense of this proverb, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Um, the point is, again, that the wise will recognize that how they are in thought, word, and deed, will have profound effect upon their neighbor. This probably seems as a rudimentary point, but sin so blinds us and so consumes us that it's all about me, and it's all about how I feel, and what I want, and my agenda, and I lose sight of the very plain, plain as the nose on my neighbor's face, reality that my thoughts, words, and deeds affect my neighbor. And so even something as small as the light of the eyes, or as the ESV study Bible has it, a twinkle of the eyes rejoices the heart of my neighbor, brings joys to the heart of my neighbor. So part of wisdom is recognizing that you're an instrument And you can be an instrument of sorrow or an instrument of joy. An instrument that rejoices and comforts and consoles. Yeah, maybe even exhorts and corrects in the spirit of love those around you. Or you can be the kind that's a Debbie Downer. (laughs) Someone who's dour, overly serious, nasty, rude. Um, These kinds of quarrelsome. Oh my goodness, quarrelsome. That's a big word, isn't it? 
I mean, not so much the length of the word itself, the concept. It can be quarrelsome in all kinds of different ways. Okay, so that again is, I think, at the essence of this proverb at verse 30, to recognize that what we do, even something so small as the twinkle of one's eyes, the expression of one's eyes, can rejoice the heart. And good news refreshes the bones. So here we have a doubly positive proverb. Good news, of course, the ultimate good news is the gospel, but most commentators take this to be good news in general. So um, the kind of like benediction in the broad sense, um, bene, good, or blessing, and diction, speech, speech right? So the, the benedicamus is let us bless the Lord. Let us speak well unto the Lord. Um, the benediction is God's good word to us. And what a beautiful word that is, that his face would shine upon us, be gracious to us. The light of his countenance would shine upon us and upon our way. Beautiful blessing. And so to receive that benediction and to then bless others with our lips, with the news we bring, you refresh bones. That means you refresh the innermost parts of a person can bring life to the innermost parts of a person. Boy, this is something we really need to be conscious of, because does media and social media just fill us with great, good, uplifting news? (laughs) Precisely the opposite, I think. I mean, maybe it's just the algorithms. You always have to worry about that. If it's just the algorithms that are being fed to you uniquely, who knows what your neighbor's saying. Are you all getting like Stories about profound avocado seasonal growth and kittens saving other kittens and butterflies increasing in number and making the flowers ever more beautiful. Is that, is that on your feeds? It's not on mine either, I guess, then. So this idea that in a bad news world to be good news people... And when you see the patterning of a conversation being negative, now it's always fun to jump in and be negative. I mean, everybody enjoys a good bash of something. So I'm not trying to steal away your joy unnecessarily on that point. But when you do kind of see that the whole thing's becoming dour and oppressive and depressing and not going in the right direction, To be aware of that and bring good news, bring a positive meditation, or I don't even know, I mean, you can do this all kinds of different ways. At my household, I find myself, you know, around the table sometimes being like, well, that's enough of that meditation. Let's move on (laughs) to something positive, or let's move on to something beautiful or noble or true. Okay, so that's the kind of thing that is in view of this proverb, to recognize that even something like the twinkling of your eyes, the expression of your eyes, can bring joy to another. And of course, what you do with your mouth has the power to refresh bones, or tying it in with an earlier proverb, to break bones. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is maybe one of the more asinine little nursery rhymes we have. Words are crushing in a way that uh, sticks and stones never could be. So you can use the power of your lips for great benefit of your neighbor or great detriment of your neighbor. That's what's in view here. Okay, now meditating on that idea of good news, we then transition to 31, the ear. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof. Now again, who likes to be reproved? Who likes to be corrected? Well, the answer of the Bible is the wise. (laughs) So we should aspire toward that. And when we feel our own hearts rejecting that or our own ego swelling up in angry pride against it, we should put those things to death, crucify them, humble ourselves and receive reproof. But this is a wonderful thing. We don't often think of reproof as life-giving. And again, this gets especially muddled in late Lutheranism where we'd say, reproof, that's law. The law can't bring life. Okay? Our categories are only helpful insofar as they're helpful. But where the Word of God speaks, all categories ought to be set aside or at least 
reevaluated on the basis because the Word of God is dominant, is it not? Clearly. And the Word of God here says that the ear that listens to life giving reproof. So reproof itself can be life giving. So here's an example I use to try to confound modern Lutherans. Now, understand me rightly. I've got no problem with Lutheranism. I am a proud Lutheran pastor. I love the Book of Concord. I love our Lutheran heritage. I aspire to preach and teach nothing aside from that rich tradition. And that because I believe that the Scriptures are the sole norm and source of all theology. And I believe that the Lutheran confessions rightly teach that same truth unto us. I am critical of late Lutheranism because I see late Lutheranism bending more and more away from the Lutheran confessions and the Word of God. So understand me rightly there. But late Lutheranism especially has a hard time reckoning with the plain speech of Scripture, like life-giving reproof. So one of my way of confounding late Lutherans is to use an example like this. And of course, there are many examples that would fit this pattern or motif. If your little daughter or granddaughter, who's two or three years old, is reaching up at the stove and about to knock off a pot of boiling water, and you say, Stop! You raise your voice. When you yell stop, she is startled. She shakes and she stops and she looks at you with shock and tears welling up in her eyes. Law or gospel? (laughs) How about life-giving reproof? (laughs) Life-giving correction. And that's precisely what's in view here with this kind of verse and this kind of piece of wisdom. That when we correct our neighbor, when we stop them from jumping off a cliff, they don't know it's there. They're going 100 miles an hour. And when you say stop, you are blessing them. It is a life-giving reproof. And of course, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. I can't remember whether I read it in the study notes of the Lutheran Bible here or in the commentary, but there's this, this kind of sentiment of... Now I lost my train of thought. Let me get it back. Does this happen more and more frequently as you get older? Yes. That's, that's not good news, but I'm going to listen to it. So let me, let me see if it comes back to me as I get going here. The, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Oh yeah, here's the sentiment. The sentiment is you can't be wise unless you're first a fool. You can't be wise unless you first are willing to acknowledge that you're not wise and to set aside what you think is wisdom and to receive, in this case, life-giving reproof. And I think that that perfectly expresses, again, the idea isn't mine, it's coming from one of these other sources. I think that perfectly expresses the meaning of this particular proverb, that the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So, a familiar theme, though, throughout the Proverbs, ultimately, that we humble ourselves and listen to wisdom and thus become wise. To say, I'm wise already and close your ears, I'm full already, is just a recipe for God to send you home empty. And in thinking you're wise, you'll simply become more and more a fool. So that is the innate humility required of the path of Christian wisdom, is that you continually submit yourself to the Word of God and submit your own thoughts to the fact that they could be wrong. And the Word of God is what's going to dictate whether they're right or wrong. So it's the submission of our reason to the Word of God. Of course, some of you will recognize that well-worn pattern, the magisterial use or the ministerial use of reason. And here we're talking about the ministerial use of reason. Reason 
subservient to the Word of God. Held captive to the Word of God. Okay, just a little bit more, and then I'll stop and see what your thoughts are. So 32 continues the theme, whoever ignores instruction despises himself. So we don't often think of it that way, because we think, I love myself, I'm not going to listen to that nonsense. But in fact, by turning away from, quote-unquote, that nonsense, which is in fact godly instruction, you end up not loving yourself, but despising yourself. And this contrasted then in the latter half, he who listens to reproof, there's that word again, gains intelligence. I don't want to listen to reproof. I just want to listen to the gospel. I'm burned out on reproof. All I want is the gospel. Wise or foolish? Foolish. Sounds wise. Absolutely foolish. Because it is in accord with and taught by God's word that we listen to life-giving reproof, that we listen to reproof and thus gain intelligence. Don't you just love the Bible's plain speech way of insulting everyone? Like if you don't do this, you don't even have intelligence. (laughs) It's great fun. It's great fun. It insults and obliterates all of us. It's like that that last line from the Old Testament reading this morning is not my word a rock or a, a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. That's what it is. A hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. So you have to listen to reproof in order to gain intelligence. The fear of the Lord, and here, of course, we go back to the source and the theme of Proverbs. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is the working theme and thesis, and it goes all the way through. And here we're brought back to that core and to that heart. The fear of the Lord is not here just the beginning of wisdom, but is instruction in wisdom. And humility comes before honor. So they're beautifully tying it all together and uniquely and wonderfully making it Christiform, Christ-shaped, cruciform, cross-shaped. Because the fear of the Lord, to humble oneself before the Lord, before his judgment, is instruction and wisdom And in humbling oneself and in doing just this, we recognize that humility comes before honor. That we want to follow in Christ's path, which is the path of ultimate wisdom, and instruction and humility, that if we suffer with him, we might also be exalted with him. Riffing on the reading from Romans in the lectionary today. If we suffer with him, if we're willing to be humbled with him, then we will be glorified with him and exalted with him. That's the promise of the scriptures, and that's the path of wisdom. Okay, let me pause there and see what thoughts you have. Everybody's shy today? I'm going to have to be more provocative. If I make some if I make some blunders, then maybe you won't be uh, embarrassed to speak. How's that? I promise to make some blunders here in the next few minutes. Seriously, nothing. Okay. Then let's uh, let's make one final comment and then move on. And this is a comment that's uh, arisen in some of our other classes, too. I think it's good to meditate on, especially in light of this section of Proverbs. And that is the idea that we are indeed justified and saved by grace, through faith, apart from works, on account of Christ. But the experience of retaining that faith, while the devil, the world and our own sinful nature are doing their darndest to wrestle that faith away from us, to destroy it, to pervert it, subvert it, to extricate it, to do whatever they can. The experience of that is not one of, oh, it's all free and easy. (laughs) So you've got this kind of paradox, and it's important to recognize the scriptures speak both ways. We are, in fact, righteous in God's sight, apart from our works, apart from any 
merit or worthiness in us and solely for the sake of the righteousness of Christ and his blood which cleanses uh, cleanses us of our sins, God looks upon us and imputes us, reckons us righteous in his sight. Now, hold on to that faith and you will be attacked and assaulted in such a way that the Christian life could be described as difficult. Jesus will will talk about the narrow and difficult path. He will even use the word from which we get agonize, and he'll say, agonize to go. He'll talk about the narrow door. Agonize to squeeze yourself through that door. So on the one hand, it's free and easy, and you don't do anything. On the other hand, it requires everything. So I think you can see that other side of what it requires in terms of holding that faith over and against the assaults of the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh in a set of Proverbs like these. We are justified before God by grace through faith, etc., etc. And yet it's also necessary for us to receive reproof and correction and to be humbled and to learn the way of humility because the alternative is to have the faith that God has implanted in our hearts torn away from us. All right, hopefully that makes some sense. On to chapter 16, verse 1, which as you can tell is kind of an artificial break, but it's fine. The plans of the heart belong to man, But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now here's one that's broad enough and general enough to invite a bunch of meditation and maybe some different takes on it. That's fine. I'll give you more or less the standard middle-of-the-road take. And that is that even while man is working out, okay, this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen, and then I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to do that that what comes out of the mouth is ultimately determined not by him, but by the Lord. So you can think of this, maybe one more level of complexity. What you say and what you intend isn't always what's communicated. That adds one more layer to it, but maybe opens a little bit of a window into this proverb and what it's getting at. So don't we have a kind of proverb of our own um, man plans and God laughs or something like that? That's maybe there's a maybe there's a fifty percent uh, semantic overlap here between that proverb and this one. You can uh, the um, the study Bible the commentary they both mention like Caiaphas and uh, more broadly than all the ironies that come out of the mouths of the leaders and people who are rejecting Christ during his passion. You know, his blood be upon us and upon our children. I mean, what a terrible thing to say, especially in the sense that they mean it. What a glorious thing God does when, in effect, what you said for evil, I will transform into a statement of good. Indeed, his blood is upon us and upon our children. Just in a cleansing and amazing and transcendent way. Not at all how that phrase was originally meant. So this idea of man has his plans and his meaning that comes forth from his lips, but God is ultimately the determiner of how things go. This is a helpful way to think, again, a la bondage of the will and Luther's theology and some of what I think I was on about last week. That's this idea that the freedom we think we have is in fact quite illusory. And I'm not even afraid to say that in the philosophical way, it's quite illusory because we do in fact have freedom in regard to things below us. But the things below us in their particulars and specifics aren't within our purview or freedom. So for example, you can say, well, I can marry whoever I want, which is true only to a point. Those you encounter and happen to encounter at a time and place in which you see them as a viable spouse, but already you see we're stacking conditionals, contingencies. 
you can't in fact marry whoever you want because only a small percentage of the human population is roaming the face of the earth right now relative to all who have come before so you're already limited and then can you really marry everyone you want are you going to go to china and walk through all the provinces and no so it's limited to the people who are put into your path well who puts those people into your path you See, it gets narrower and narrower and narrower. Um, and this is all, by the way, this in the spirit of Luther and, and things that uh, he's kind of after. So that when we think of our planning, we think of it as, oh yeah, well this is virtually guaranteed. And God laughs and God directs and God controls even unto what comes out of our mouths at the critical moment. So that's what this proverb seems to be getting at. And again, I've tried to just give you the straight down the middle take on chapter 16, verse 1. On to 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Isn't that right? Even when your conscience condemns you, that's just an opportunity to explain well why you are actually right anyway. So, what we're talking about here is, of course, the fallen man and a human being before being renewed by the Holy Spirit. And this category of man thinks that everything he does is wonderful and that he's a good person. And the only bad people out there are Hitler and either the Democrats or the Republicans, right? That's it. But this delusion is baked into our sinful nature where we're honestly blind and if you're willing to be a little introspective you know your mileage may vary of course but if you look back at your past and maybe to more immature times in your spiritual life you're likely to find a correlation that the times in which you thought you were the absolute wisest and best and heads and head and shoulders above all the other Christians were the times you were in fact so mired and lost in sin there was nothing but your nostrils poking out of the mud. That's a kind of irony and a kind of spiritual reality that's baked into the fallen flesh where, in many respects, the worse you are, the better you think you are. Our perception of ourselves is skewed in this general pattern. And that's effectively what's being said here. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Sometimes you even have arguments made, and this, and this is the inexcusable foolishness, of course, because it's completely contradictory to God's word. But you'll find even Christians making these kinds of arguments that, well, maybe a deed is sinful, maybe a word is sinful, but thoughts are just fair game. There's nothing sinful about a thought because you can't control your thoughts after all. And nothing could be further from the truth, of course. If we wanted to really hit this one out of the park, we could go back to 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. So their thoughts are particularly in view. But here we see it also, albeit perhaps in a more general way, that the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. His whole way of thinking is an abomination to the Lord. Now, if you have somebody who's convinced that they're a good person, even when they're not... How do you convince them that they're not a good person? C.S. Lewis has, and I'm going to paraphrase it and probably butcher it, but apologies. A man who thinks that he is good has not tried very hard to be good. Did I do that right? Yes, I did. Okay, what's the point? The point is, until you've actually exercised yourself in trying to be good, you don't realize how bad you are. To put that with a little bit more theological depth and detail, until you set before you daily the Ten Commandments and try to walk in them, you won't understand how far lost you are. How powerful your flesh is. That's from a Christian angle, of course. So all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. How does God change us from thinking that we're good that when we're not 
that we're righteous, that we're not, that we're, when, that we're you know, we think we're well and we're not. And that is the work of the law proper. Because the law comes in and says, well, if you're a good person, surely you're doing all these things, right? If you're a good person, you're not only doing these things externally, but all the way down to the depths of your heart. And you can see Jesus preaching this way, where, for example, he talks about lust of the eye. So you think you're a good person? Surely your eye has never looked at the member of the opposite sex with lust. So you think you're a good person? Certainly in your heart you've never called your brother a fool. So the law comes and says, do this, and we recognize that in the attempt of doing it, we cannot, and we fail, and we fall short. That's the first enlightenment. That's the first act that God does in order to effect a healing, our profound spiritual healing that we're undergoing. He must convince us that we are not, in fact, pure in our own ways, despite what we, by nature, think. So, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. And that second half is really just a brief expression of all the things I've been talking about with the law, that it is the Lord who weighs the spirit of a man, and he does so according to the impartiality of his righteous law. His righteous law is just a reflection of who he is and a reflection of goodness. So he's not doing anything mean or nasty. He's just saying, hey, I am good. This is my will for for you. Are you also good? The answer, of course, is no. And that is preparatory for the gospel. That's the preparation that God works in a man's heart that he might be prepared to receive the gospel. So how do we take this as Christians? I think we especially reflect on this, that our sinful nature is still in there saying, hey, just because you think it doesn't mean it's right. Just because you want it doesn't mean it's right. Just because you feel, oh gosh, feelings have become the false gods of our age. Just because you feel like the thing is right, uh, you're accountable to another. And if you want to know what is in fact good and right, you've got to weigh things according to his word and in fear recognize that that's the criteria by which he's going to judge you. Not your intentions, not your heart, not your feelings, not your thoughts. His own word. All right, so in just a moment then we'll kind of go off into the next proverb on the idea of the Lord watching, the Lord weighing the Spirit and thus all our work done in the sight of the Lord. So let's pause there. Any reflections? Everybody's still okay? No one's feeling talkative? Thank you for humoring me there in the back. For those watching online, at least there aren't any eyes closed, so... I'm, I'm sure I would have had a question before now, but I was busy doing something, so I apologize. Nice. <laughs> so, at any rate, uh, I've I'm always been intrigued by uh, people who think they're good and don't need Jesus uh, and his uh, sacrifice. Always say that they'll, yeah, they keep the Ten Commandments. And it's always fun to say, you can't even get past the first one. <laughs> Much less the second one. Yeah, right. Maybe the third you're okay. You know, I don't know. But it, it, when, when it's just held up slightly to their, their life work or whatever you want to call it, uh, it, they fall so short so fast that they don't like that. So if you could comment... It, it, do you think that's a good strategy to talk about? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I, it, can be, it can be very helpful. You know, Je- Jesus does something like this when the man comes up to him and says, Good teacher. And Jesus attacks his, I mean, immediately goes after his under, Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. So, obviously, Jesus is pecking. I mean, as the man replays that conversation in his head, as we all do, (laughs) what did he mean by that? 
right? So that attacking the, the sort of presuppositions that people have, this is what good is. Yeah, that can be, uh, I think that can be very helpful. Yeah, please. I have a question, I think. Is it on? Okay. Okay. Um, 15.31 and 16.2, uh, the life-giving reproof. Mm-hmm. And uh, if a man sees what he's doing as pure in his own eyes, um, I just wanted to run it past you. I, I think that I can tell when it's life-giving reproof and when it's not, but sometimes I think I can't tell. Um, when I read the Bible or uh, go to church, it's life-giving reproof. But sometimes an obvious one is someone will say, well, why are you submitting to your husband? And that's obviously not life-giving reproof. But but then there's some that are more uh, gray area, like, well, maybe you should be more patient or something. like. And sometimes that has to be weighed. But I guess I'm just asking... Is, is Bob better at dealing with people than I am? <laughs> I don't know. Because I try to figure it out. Even if it's coming from a non-Christian who can't get past the first commandment, maybe there's a you know, stopped clock sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, God corrects a prophet, albeit a false prophet, from the mouth of a donkey. So, yeah, you've got to listen to donkeys and stopped clocks and pagans and take take rebuke wherever it comes as long as it's true and I think that's what you're trying to fetch out so um, obviously it's easy for me to say well is it in accord with God's word then take it to heart that's easy but there is an element of subjectivity to this there is an element of art and not science and that tends to be what drives us batty because we just don't know if we should heed that or not You know, I I mean, I run into this. You probably do, too. Is this a time where it would be better to be patient or to be bold? I mean, they're both virtues. (laughs) The intention is good. They're, they're both commended by God, and there isn't exactly a precise playbook that, you know, you're not going to turn to the... 330th psalm and get a word that is very specific to the particular situation you're in. So there is some subjectivity involved. And as with having freedoms in things below us, I think that it's a better way to go to be wise, to be prudent, to, if you can, stop and think. That's what one of the earlier Proverbs is, to analyze and assess. But when you go forward, either with um, patience, let's say, or boldness, let's say, um, to entrust yourself to the Lord and not overly, not overanalyze. There's a certain point at which you have to say, all right, either way I go, I'm within the bounds of the Lord, so why would I just start to scrutinize? And I mean, he's given me a mind, he's given me a heart, he's given me a station in life, he's put me here, I need to act and trust that he is going to, you know, make happen what needs to happen. And not to judge with the eyes. You know, sometimes when you're bold, people all get all wound up and, you know, reactive and that kind of thing. And you might be tempted to immediately go, oh, well, that was the wrong thing to do. Well, it's only the wrong thing to do if the criteria of judgment is the opinion of man. (laughs) But it's not. So there's a kind of, you know, I think as parents, we we say the short form where it's like... um, because I said so, that's the short form. It's really because God made me the parent, not you. So even though, yeah, what you want to do is permissible, and what I want you to do is permissible, the one whom God has put in the office to make the decision, subjective as it may be, is me and not you. And there's actually a fair amount of this that goes on in the pastoral office, too. I'm not quite old and crotchy enough to start using this, but it just keeps crawling like closer and closer to the tip of my tongue. And pretty soon it's going to start coming out. And it's just like this, because God called me to be the pastor, not you. I understand it's subjective. I understand that the, the way you see it is wise and good, and, and, and I, 
maybe you don't think so, but the way I see it is wise and good. Someone has to make a decision here. God put me into the office to make the decision. Let the, let's let the decision be made and go forward. You know, so in our vocations, there's this kind of, you know, there's, these, there's moments in which subjectivity is involved. And we have to entrust ourselves to the Lord that there isn't some secret what, right way that we have to determine. Or just because people's feelings get hurt, that's necessarily the wrong way. Jesus hurts people's feelings all the time. So, all that to say that, yeah, if we can identify a clear white and black, that's the best. But sometimes we do come down, especially like interpersonal relationships. Are you supposed to answer calmly or harshly? That is art and not science. And we need to entrust that God has put us in that position and we can make a determination and submit ourselves to him and pray that he would prosper the work of our hands, prosper the work of our lips, prosper whatever decision or way we go about it. And there is an element, too, then, of our accountability before God and not man. And that, again, is very acute in terms of your vocation. So... Maybe, maybe in a few months, the guys in our, in our study will talk, and, and one of the first things I'll talk about what it is to be a man is at its absolute, just raw foundation, strip everything away, it's accountability to God and none other. Now, you can already, I'm sure your mind is already flooded with exceptions to that, okay? But that's why I said at the absolute base, when all other things have been swept away, a man is accountable to God and no other. That's what it means to be his creature. He made you, he purchased you, you belong to him, you serve him. It'll give you insight as to why David says, I've sinned against you and you alone. Give you a little insight and window into the thought paradigm he has there. So that kind of, like, I'm not going to judge myself. I'm not going to let others judge me. I'm not going to let the outcome judge me. All this is easier said than done. I'm going to commend myself into the hands of God and let him judge, right? And I'm going to go forward with a clean conscience and a right heart. I mean, that's St. Paul. I don't know of anything against myself. I'm not thereby justified. My conscience is clean. Ultimately, God is the boss. That's a glorious way to live and move. And it frees you up to not worry about, you know, oh, people got grumpy. That must have been a mistake. No, not really. Okay, that's it. The Lord be with you.